Hello and welcome to a special double episode of On War, the podcast. Tonight, Austin and I dive into the murky waters of piracy, privateers, and merchant warfare. While film and novels have painted a picture of plunder and adventure, how have these high sea thieves changed the nature of naval warfare? And what can this teach us of the war on piracy waged today? It's a little unfortunate that we're a month late on on this one, because last month was Talk Like a Pirate Day, and um, today we're talking about pirates. So, uh, Yarg, I guess? Yarg, indeed. Yarg, indeed. Now, this show is normally focused on the conduct of, of armed conflict for political means, and um, if people remember back to our episode on Greed versus Grievance, you, one might think that pirates pirates at any stretch at any time would sit well over into the, to the Greek category, and indeed they often do. But nevertheless, they do have a, a very deep relationship with the practice of war for political goals one way or another, and we'll get into that further on. But first of all, pirates. We would have a general understanding of it, um, particularly in the West, we'd think of it as being a thing of, of, of the age of Caribbean exploitation, Latin America, the, the pirates of the, the gold and the Spanish gold and silver, and kind of very, very old history. As long as there's been sea trade, there have been people willing to prey on it. Um, the Sicilian pir- pirates both plundered and fed the Roman economy. Uh, they, they'd steal from Roman trade routes when available. Um, they'd also sell slaves from their other exploits to the Romans directly. During uh, about the 60 to 65 uh, BCE, the pirate raiding throughout the Mediterranean became a, a serious threat to Rome and Rome's trade routes, um, which triggered Pompey leading a, a campaign against them, a naval campaign against them, something that the Romans weren't really on board with. Naval power was not normally their thing, which is strange for a Mediterranean power, but it wasn't. Nevertheless, Pompey led a, a highly successful campaign against them that lasted several years and led to the, at that point, the virtual um, extermination of the Sicilian pirate threat at that time. Uh, it also led to the Rome uh, seriously undertaking a, not a strong, but a, for the next few years at least, a permanent naval presence in what would we, we would now call um, anti-piracy activities or, in fact, the preservation of sea, um, sea lanes of communication. Uh, and this is happening, like I said, 67 to 70 BCE is when those um, patrols are being actively maintained normally in a time of peace. So it's an unusual sort of parallel to the world we find ourselves in now. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's it's important, though, to recognise that what the the view we have, the popular opinion we have of what is piracy is actually not reflective of reality at any time. Um, you know, it is very sexy to talk about the pirates of the Caribbean and, you know, swashbuckling heroes. And But the reality is that the vast majority of piracy throughout history and even now is simply maritime robbery anytime we've had maritime trade and we've always had maritime trade um, from the egyptians onwards there's been people who have stolen from ports there's a reason that ports are typically associated with organized crime Um, the majority of piracy occurs in dock and it quite often at least in the modern context doesn't actually involve violence and so i think it's important to make the point at this point that even though we see piracy and it's portrayed as a serious threat it's often not actually uh, reflective of pop culture and the danger there of course is the danger we always talk about with discourse which is that the popular opinion about what's piracy and deserves to be securitized and what's not is quite unreflective of the reality and that then damages your counter piracy efforts particularly in places like southeast asia yeah it's a lot like terrorism in this regard especially um today particularly during the peak of somali activity in 2011 it was portrayed as this serious threat to maritime trade but at the end of the day, it's it's often quite minor, really, in its impact. This is for a couple of reasons. First of all, piracy ha- is very rarely organized beyond the group that's actually operating. Almost, as a rule, almost never um, exists as, a, as an organized force. It's a incidental activity. But more interestingly, there's this dualistic nature to piracy. As much as they prey on society and as much as society portrays them as being social outcasts, as, as people who deliberately reject the social mores and, and live lives as rogues, as, as a sort of a mirror image of what society should be, where particularly the traditional Western idea of swashbuckling pirates, where society is rules-driven. These men live in, particularly men, uh, live in a, a state of anarchy, of brotherhood rather than order and so on. The reality is 
to pirate, they require trade routes. For trade routes to prosper, they must be relatively free of piracy. So there's a sort of point of diminishing returns where too much piracy is going to lead to people to produce a coercive response, much like Pompey's campaigns. When it gets too much, you stamp it out, and that's bad for the pirates because they all get killed. Yeah, well, the other thing, too, that remember is it's actually a very small proportion of pirates. That's their main source of income. Um, very few folks will go out and say, I'm going to be a pirate. And in fact, the majority of times when they capture pirates in the modern context, they don't think of themselves as pirates, particularly not in the sort of swashbuckling sense. The vast majority of pirates historically and maritime robbers historically have simply been fishermen or other seaborne folk who hit hard times and decides it is easier rather than fishing to simply go and take what they want from passing maritime traders. This is the reason that we see um, such uh, incidents of uh, piracy and, and the like in places like the Horn of Africa and in Southeast Asia. It is areas of the world where there is an indigenous population that is quite often with a low socioeconomic standing for which piracy and maritime robbery seems a good way of supporting themselves. It's not something they particularly want to make a career of, so to speak, and the the concept we see of Pirates of the Caribbean of these professional pirates is certainly not reflective of reality and in, in most cases has never been reflective of the mainstream of piracy. With one exception which we'll come to later on in the episode when we actually start relating this to war, but actually on that point of not seeing themselves, one of the articles we've come across in the research for this, which um, is not is not really the focus of the episode, but it's worth bringing up, is an article by Doherty and, um, and Bonnie. Again, show notes can be found on our blog. Um, towards a general theory of piracy. Uh, and I just want to read two selections of that on that point, Austin. First of all, um, many of the accused refuse the label or embrace it, but defend their actions as morally justifiable banditry, often playing sort of more towards the, uh, as you say, um, the state has restricted my ability or the, the polity has restricted my ability to, to earn a legitimate income, therefore I must steal bread to live. Or, in a sort of Robin Hood example, the further bit I want to read here is that they define piracy from that point more or less as you'd expect. A, a form of morally ambiguous property seizure committed by an organized group, including thievery, hijacking, smuggling, counterfeiting, kidnapping, so on. Uh, piracy, as you'd imagine it, on the high seas or in port. But they then make the point of that um, one thing that many of the preceding definitions lack is an emphasis on the social quality of piracy, an oversight which our anthropological query can help counterbalance. First of all, they make the point that no pirate works alone, and that this is important to actually appreciate the dynamics that occurs both between the pirate organization and within it as well. They go on to say, We argue that images and narratives of classical pirates fuel not only competing, but con contradictory economic fantasies. As the ideal, rational choice individualist, a consumer of monstrous proportions, or as profit-sharing, utopian socialist. This is not inexplicable. In truth, pirates seem to practice both. They take for themselves, as a social group, and then divide amongst themselves according to an ethos of sharing. Yet no contemporary political or economic theorist we have found seems to have worked out a both-and principle between greed and sharing that the classical pirate operates under. Nor can rational choice hyper-individualism account for the popularity of pirate representations. But that's the, I think that's the key point here, is that, and particularly when we start to look at, and this is the next part of the episode, when we start to look at pirates as combatants, it's important to recognise that as long as we've had pirates, there's been this romanticism about what they are and what they look like that's actually quite divorced from the reality. You know, this dates all the way back uh, to ancient times, but one of the most prominent uh, pre-modern examples, of course, is Drake, um, one of the you know the premier socialist, like very popular pirates or privateers. And I think it's important to recognise before we go into examining privateering, is that like terrorism, again, this is a form of non-state act of violence that is actually defined by its discourse rather than its reality. I think that's important to keep in mind here. So much of politics revolves around that, and this is a point that Austin and I agree on, and I come back time and time again. If you want to understand what something is happening politically, particularly when it's tied to violence, first look at the stories people tell about it and how they interact, both at a, 
um, the stories at a, a political, at a legislative, high politics at, at a legislative or diplomatic level, and then the stories that are told at, at the most basic level and compare the two. I think also, before we move on, and the next we really do need to move on to piracy on war, but um, if there are any anthropologists or anyone who has an interest in, in piracy per se, classical or modern, one of the things that really came out to me, Austin, during the research, and I don't know about you, was that this is an area of um, the literature that has significant gaps and something that we've both gone through relatively recently over the last 18 months in Austin's case and last six months in mine. Literature gaps make PhDs and masters by research. So if anyone has a real interest in piracy as piracy, there's a lot of PhD theses waiting to be written there. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And particularly when you start looking at historical piracy and, and some of the, like, an actual geopolitical history of some of these modern piracy hotspots, the literature simply isn't there. Um, there's a number of reasons for that. The primary ones, of course, are that non-academic histories are considered to have covered it, and they haven't, really. No, the stories. Yeah, exactly. And the second one is simply that the funding people think is out there is, again, not reflective of the reality. So, yeah, if, you, if you're if you at home and you're listening to this and you think, oh, I really want to do something on piracy, well, come and join academia because it's certainly there. And you know, It's the job that never stops. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So, moving on to what is actually our area of expertise, which is war rather than piracy. It's important to note that um, the duality that I mentioned before of of the relationship between powerful state actors and pirates and, and trade also reflects in their conduct. Because if you're willing to do violence purely for profit, and you, you need a powerful backer to do it, and remember that unlike a highway bandit who can find, honestly, a sharpened stick, to commit piracy on the high seas, one requires at the very least a boat to do it in, and boats are expensive. So pirates are almost unique in sort of the, the conduct of uh, thievery, if you like, in that the operating costs are substantially higher than under almost any other um, criminal standpoint, at, at a base level. No matter what you're doing as a pirate, you need a boat. Boats are going to cost you money, and particularly the further you go back in history, the costs are dwindling now, of course, with, with um, the globalization of the world market, proliferation of, of, of lighter, fast craft, like rigid inflatables and, and tinnies and so on. For non-Australian listeners, a tinny is a literally an aluminium-style light boat with an outboard motor. We call them tinnies. We also call our beers tinnies. It's somewhat confusing if you're fishing. But particularly if you go back further back in history, piracy becomes a very expensive em- enterprise to operate under. You, you, you need quite a... Not just for the ship, but then to, to arm it appropriately. It, it becomes a very expensive exercise. But it goes a little bit further than that, and this is one of the reasons that maritime piracy became a weapon of war, is that 70% of the world is actually water. And unlike land-based banditry, where you can stumble upon a victim basically anywhere, actually finding a ship, particularly in the age before available radar, is almost impossible. There's absolutely no way for a single pirate vessel to find uh, a random... Commercial vessel, but anything other than accident, unless they have the resources of the state and the ability and the uh, almost the authority to act within established trade routes. And even in that case, we're not talking about at this time in history. We're not talking about a pirate vessel coming across a, a valuable or even accessible target every day. It was quite rare and quite difficult for pirates and privateers to find enemy vessels of any kind without support and without help. And that's why privateering really took off. Because you have to remember that even though the state benefited from privateering, we're about to talk about that in a second, the privateers themselves also had to have a reason to come over to the other side other than simple self-preservation. So they obviously, they need the funding, they need the resources. From the other side of that, though, if you think building and owning one ship is beyond the the means of even a a substantially wealthy, um, say, gentleman adventurer in the, the finest of English Elizabethan traditions. Actually building and sustaining a standing navy is far more expensive, not just because of um, the costs of construction, but of maintenance. Unlike an army which you can raise from the citizenry, even in feudal times, or especially in feudal times, you can raise you know, lords and, and peasant armies. To maintain a navy, the infrastructure and the assets, that the ships themselves, the weapons and so on, to be effective... Because they take so long to construct, they need to be actively maintained for decades. So outsourcing that 
becomes a very viable option. Now you have a group of individuals who do own their own ships or are willing to take ownership of a ship, who are willing to commit violence for profit, and you have a state that has other states it wishes to commit violence upon, for political goals or otherwise, who has a substantial amount of wealth compared to the individual, but certainly doesn't want to go through the 50-60 year process in the age of fighting sail of, of constructing a navy. I mean, this is to build to build a, a, a 17th or 16th or even a 17th century navy. It's You've got to grow, the, they grew special trees often. The British Navy famously grew trees for hulls. That's the kind of length of planning we're talking about here. And the upfront costs of maintaining a navy as well are much greater than an army. Any army, uh, depending on the size, obviously, finds it comparatively easier to campaign and comparatively cheaper to campaign. Particularly if you're campaigning in enemy territory where you can forage and raise and banditry to support yourself. A naval vessel of any variety requires that all of the supplies, weapons, ammunition, and pay for the crew are already on board by the time it leaves port. That is an incredible outlay of initial cost that is simply unsustainable, particularly for smaller states and states that had other financial commitments. So we've, we've talked around this a lot. We haven't actually defined this. So what is a privateer? And the best and simplest um, definition of a privateer really is a pirate on pay, on the books. What would happen, um, and it happened very, very early in the piece, the very first um, record that I could find in England of, of a pirate, an existing pirate being granted an authorization, a license to commit acts of violence against other specific states and not against the issuing state was Henry III in 1243. He issued a license to a number of individuals who owned their own ships who had or were willing to engage in piracy. And he basically gave them a license that said, you can engage against enemies of England only. You may not, at all, under any circumstances, engage against English ships, in, uh, ships flying the English flag, and there were some other restrictions as well. And what these people were, were privateers. And they enjoyed, at least under the norms and slowly evolving laws of the time, they did enjoy a modicum of, of protection, although, obviously, if you captured a privateer who'd been preying on your ships, you may be inclined to call him a pirate. And certainly many privateers were, in fact, hung and, and treated and tried as pirates. A, a kid was one of these, and there's actually some ambiguity over whether or not the crime for which he was officially charged actually was authorized or not, and you know, by the gray area of law he died. But the idea was that for the, the privateer, they were authorized against certain targets, so it restricted what they could target, but by the same token it gave them protection from the state, and more importantly gave them an um, offense, basically. Uh, the other side of piracy is once you've captured the goods, like the goods themselves, sometimes they're useful, but often they're not. What's more useful is good, hard money to pay your crew and to, to divvy up. So you need somewhere to sell that. Now, for you know, your regular thieves, that's uh, that's offense. That's someone who can pass on a black market goods through the, through the economy. But if you're seizing whole cargoes, that scale is you know it's a lot larger and a lot harder to do. If you have a state sponsoring you with courts that you can take the captured ship and the captured cargo to and the state buys your cargo and the ship and then gives you your share of the the bounty on it all that's just so much simpler easier the paperwork's taken care of everyone's happy so this is a win-win scenario states don't want to create navies they don't want to be funding hundreds of years in some cases. There are, there are uh, cases of, of English ships in, in the Napoleonic Wars that were 60, 70 year, years old at the time and considered in their prime because they, they had to last that long because of the expenditure concerned. So if you can pay these guys this much, why not do it? So European governments have got in on the game very quickly, very early, and it, um, it was a practice that existed for hundreds of years. In fact, privateering pretty much was the principal form of maritime warfare by the English against the Spain by the end of the 16th century. And this is England, as supposedly the great naval power. But again, even for them, the price was so high. The other thing that privateering lets states do is commit violence and really sort of undermine the economic might of an adversary without committing to a full-scale war. And what we're really seeing is we're starting in a new grey area here. You know, Not the illicit, illicit grey area Alice has been talking about, but a grey area between at what point do non-state actor participation in violence become an actual conduct of war. What we're seeing here is very similar to when we talk about mercenaries being involved in conflict. And so it may not be a declared war, 
But from a theoretical standpoint, this is one of those areas where you have to draw your own conclusions. Does it count as war when we see large-scale operations of privateering? For example, um, during the War of 1812, you see American privateers engaged in wholesale conflict of British and Canadian, well, what we would now call Canadian shipping and mercantile fleets. By the same token, of course, France and the UK during the Napoleonic Wars regularly and quite profitably involved both privateers and state-based navies in raiding and capturing mercantile vessels, particularly from the colonies that were already established. And so, you know, from a theoretical standpoint, it is quite difficult to say whether this is a war, in quotation marks, or simply a form of conflict. Because realistically what we're seeing is the imposition of violence at the behest and with the funding of a state against another state slash its agents for the purposes of changing the balance of power between those two states. And so really I think, and I know Alistair and I disagree on whether this counts as warfare or not, but I think it's one of those things that a listener has to think about and realise because it is often talked about, particularly in the modern context, as a war against piracy in the same way as there's a war against drugs. And the securitization of such things is a, is a topic for another episode. But in this case, I think it is really on that line there, in the same way as mercenaries on the land are. I think 1812 is a fantastic example of this um, for a number of reasons. First of all, because um, the sort of foundation of America uh, and the original doctrine around that was at least in documentation and in narrative antithetical to the idea of a standing army. And as we've already established, you cannot have anything but a standing navy for it to be effective. So privateering is a really attractive option because it, for, for the Americans, particularly this time when they're just emerging as a country, uh, because they don't have the resources and they do have this story, at least, that this is something they don't want to do. The other point, as Austin already mentioned, was that in terms of the naval warfare of 1812, privateering was pretty much the only way it was conducted. The American Navy was virtually non-existent. Um, I've got a quote here from Tabarrok, again, from from the readings. In this second war of independence, the War of 1812, privateers were the first to launch. They swept out from America's coasts, capturing and sinking as many as, many as 2,500 British ships and doing approximately $40 million US dollars worth of damage to the British economy, or about a half a billion in today's dollars. Despite some early successes, such as the defeat at Guerrero by the Constitution, the U.S. Navy was for the most part captured or bottled up in port by 1813. Only privateers continued to venture out. Garrity sums it up well. Private armed vessels were the only successful American offensive weapon after 1813 engaged in the War of 1812. And there's a reason for this, and I think it's it's interesting here to draw a reader's attention, a viewer's attention, to the fact that uh, Tabarrok, in the beginning of that quote, calls it a second war of independence. Now, it really wasn't. Um, it started when the US invaded Canada, <laughs> which was at the time a British colony. Because at the time, you've got to remember, this is 1812. The Peninsula Campaign is fully going on. The British are worried that Napoleon's about to invade, right? And so this is the equivalent of the US attacking British shipping during the Second World War. Which they had a plan for, War Plan Red, which will be the subject of another episode sometime. Absolutely. And so you've got to wonder about, again, discourse here. But on on topic, to because uh, Alice has given me a look about staying on topic for those at home, um, it's worth recommend re- recognising that at this point in time, Napoleon is trying to institute the continental system, which was effectively a continental blockade of the UK in order to force them out of the war. Because they're, at the time, the main supplies of arms to Spanish guerrillas and the Russian army. So... When Alistair talks about, and Tabarrok, who he was quoting, talks about the sinking of as many as 2,500 British ships, these are not military ships for the majority part. They're mostly mercantile vessels. And so what that did, less than helping out the the US in the War of 1812, which for the British was a massive sideshow, at least until 1813 when the Peninsula Campaign finished and they transferred a large number of veteran troops to the continent and started winning, including burning Washington, which is always hilarious to us in Australia, this was the only way the US can contribute to the war. And they did do substantive economic damage to an ongoing conflict between the UK and the French. So what my point is here is that when we look at privateering, it's also worth recognising that it has lots of flow-on effects. 
right? When you damage the economy of another state, particularly when they're engaged in hostilities with multiple fronts, what you're doing is actually having further knock-on effects than simply attacking a foreign military vessel would have. It's also, just so we're talking about the other side, because we, we've sort of talked about why a state might engage in privateering, it's also worth noting that for the privateer, when we say the state's resources and funding was available for them to outfit their crews and that was a profitable exercise, to give you an idea of how profitable it was, um, Tabronk in that article points to the um, seizure of the Hopewell by um, the privateer Comet uh, on the 13th of August, 1812. The Comet was funded by Baltimore investors, so a, a company, a group of individuals putting forth their money to outfit this ship. This was how profitable they considered it to be. The single share of the, the Hopewell, which was a um, 346 gross registered ton British ship carrying sugar, molasses, and cotton, a single share that would go to an able-bodied seaman just was worth about seven months' pay. Just that seizure. So he's getting his regular you know, daily allowance, he gets the ship, that ship is worth an extra seven months as a single one-off bonus. The captain, who gets 16 shares, this is before it gets passed up to the investors, mind you, gets 1,686 US dollars. These days, that's equivalent of about, well, it's equivalent of about 90,000 US dollars in 2007 as a uh, performance bonus. So this is a highly profitable enterprise. Sure, you go weeks, months without seeing anything, but you're still drawing regular pay while you're out at sea. When you get something, your Christmas bonus looks really good. This is an incredibly profitable exercise. Now, we've talked about this a lot from the European perspective, but the other thing to, to highlight here, and particularly as we move on, is that this isn't at all a, a, a European experience. We, we've talked about the Venetians and... That's Phoenicians, not Venetians. Um, the Phoenicians, thousands of years ago, engaging in piracy. We've talked about Rome, Europe, America... Uh, in China during the 18th and 19th century, during the, the opium conflicts, which we've got a different episode on, Chinese pirates were key into the smuggling of opium during the ban. Uh, not only that, but from another article, Kleinen, Chinese pirates often worked hand in glove with local authorities, and the shift from what was illegal to what was legal, and remembering that the legality of opium shifts during this period of history in China, and depending on your locality, so you could move opium from where it was illegal to where it was legal quite happily, particularly if you were local rather than a European, was easily made. So pirates, pirates aren't, isn't just about robbery, it's about smuggling, it's about breaking blockades, it's about circumventing trade sanctions. All of these, again, are different ways of circumventing political coercion, warfare or lesser forms, in order to affect some kind of change. The guys doing it, obviously, they're drawing a pay at the end of the day. They are completely mercenary. But it has many more flow-on effects in lots of different ways. There's another sort of um, non-European point I want to, to point to here, just so we're um, not being uh, too whitewashed in what we're looking at here. And it's a fascinating account I came across of an, uh, an Ottoman naval officer um, called Seferis, who's, a, who's a, a privateer of sorts but not quite, and he sort of heralds what we're going to look at next in the, in the last part of this episode, because he he engaged in warfare on maritime trade, or the Gure de Course, or the Germans were called it um, Handelskrieg, but uh, he engaged in, in warfare against, naval, uh, against mercantile shipping, but he was an officer, an official officer of the Ottoman Navy. The Ottoman Navy during the, this 15th and 16th century did not engage in the issuances of, of letters of mark, of authorizations to be a privateer. They didn't contract private individuals. They did, however, maintain a standing navy, and Reese was you know, a, an officer in command at this time of a squadron. Somewhere between 1540 and, and 1565, um, he commanded a, a small fleet of galleys, which he engaged in uh, a lengthy campaign uh, against Portuguese sh shipping after a famous naval defeat. Of the, of the mainstay of the, of the Ottoman navy at the hands of the Portuguese. And although he wasn't really well known in the Ottoman Empire, he attracted a huge name first in Portuguese naval intelligence, and then later on um, throughout the Portuguese culture of being this, this dreaded Barbary corsair. I, he never really went anywhere, and he's been largely forgotten by history books. And again, if you're, you're looking at an interesting sort of angle into that maritime warfare, this might be something that's pretty under-researched. But... It's worth noting that you know this is this practice becomes obvious to anyone engaged in maritime trade at any time. 
not just in the in Europe or or in ancient Rome, but the moment you have maritime trade, this opportunity exists and people will exploit it. But it this kind of thing can't last forever, can it? None of these things do. No, none of them do. I think it's important though to recognise that even though privateering was officially abolished in 1856 under the Paris Declaration respecting maritime laws. I mean, that stated quite unambiguously that it, it is and remains abolished. What's important, though, is that the hiring of private naval vessels and crews continued and was arguably not a breach. And what's important to remember here is while this whole historical period we've been talking about between the 15th century and the 19th century, it was actually quite common for private individuals to go and work for other militaries, not just in the naval context, but also in the, in, in the, um, in the land context. During the Napoleonic War, for example the vast majority of Russia's high command and staff officers were in fact Russian and Austrian. Including the uh, sort of the author of the namesake of this podcast, Clausewitz. Who fought for the Russians. And so it's important to look at this in context, right? So even though privateering is effectively abolished in 1856, um, the conduct of quite honourable by all respects officers moving between armies to further their own careers was quite normal, and that carried over into the maritime context. And so you see in 1870, Prussia sets up a basic system where it hires private crews and private vessels to form its own navy. Alistair, do you want to talk about that? Yeah, so I guess one of the things that's worth noting to give a little bit of a context is as privateering is becoming more and more successful and more and more entrenched in the state's practice, of course it comes under more and more restrictions. So if you look into, for example, how the American Constitution was um, amended very quickly to allow the issuance of these letters of mark. The restrictions and the taxation that was placed on these, and famously all of the crew of the of the Hopewell when they came in back to port had to pay tariffs and in, in fact had to pay, pay duty on any goods they'd seized coming back into the country. So these are the restrictions. This is not the anarchist pirate anymore. The rules under which these people are operating become stricter and stricter and stricter. 1856, of course... The, during the Paris Declaration and the great outport of international law, so that the foundation of modern international law is all happening in the mid-19th century onwards, the Hague Conferences, the Paris Declaration is amongst those. And it has, as Austin says, explicitly stated, privateering, privateering is and remains abolished. And during all of this period, of course, the US is, is strengthening the, uh, trying to strengthen the neutrality laws and trying to stay out of Europe and further its own expansions and ways we've talked about before. But despite this, as Austin's already pointed to, there's still a culture of professional military careers that aren't necessarily tied to a purely nationalist identity, I guess is the best way of phrasing it. So Clausewitz is an example of this. The, the reverse side of this is Prussia's formation of naval fleet, again, given the expense of, of private contracting, is another example of this. It's important to note that the reason why Prussia was not considered engaging privateering is although they hired crews and hired ship owners, they insisted that the crews were uniformed in, and flew the Republic's flag rather than a private flag. So they were explicitly Prussian during their terms of service and were armed and outfitted by the Prussian state. So although they are privately contracted for their service, it's almost like you might see a modern recruitment in the modern military today, except at a company level rather than an individual level. But nevertheless, they are armed and outfitted by the, the state, and they're not, they are not existing as mercenaries. They are acting as, during the terms of the service, as Prussian naval officers in uniform under their flag. So that's how they get around that. Now, there are some semantical differences here, and there, were, there remains, and there certainly was at the time, huge legal arguments about what side of the line this was on, but the point is that it was very much towing the line rather than explicitly privateering. The other thing, though, all of these regulations led to was a general growth of how such warfare might be conducted in the future. Obviously, by this point, various countries had seen the value in targeting naval, uh, in targeting naval trade as a form of warfare and as a form of political coercion lesser than warfare. And so what you're having is a growth, a normative growth that's happened. These have been informal rules up until this point that have slowly become more entrenched into the system. And so now we're starting to have these conferences. We're starting to formalize what have been informal rules that privateers have operated under. Sort of, I will give you this letter, you will not target English ships. 
you will treat them properly so that you don't get reprisals and I don't have to deal with the French diplomat at the supper next week who's going to ha- give me an ear- earful if you kill a, kill a crew, to being formalized in explicit international law. So the Hague Peace Conference of 1907 has two conventions that are important. Convention number six, relating to the status of enemy merchant ships at the outbreak of hostilities, which is exactly what it says on it. It's about under what circumstances ships at, merchant ships at sea may be considered targets or not if they've left before the dec- they've been at sea while the declaration of war has occurred. And another convention, convention number seven, relating to the conversion of merchant ships to warships, which in the in, at that time is starting to become sort of a covert um, thing, sort of you're creating auxiliary cruisers and Q-ships and so on, ships disguised. But really what that talks to is merchants originally converting their trading ships, which had good tonnage, to privateering vessels. And so there's a, a cor- correlation here. The East India Company is most famous for, for engaging in this duality of military and, and mercantile power, and they freely transferred the same ship to, to fill different roles depending on what was required. Again, the ship being an incredible asset. The most important one, though, here is the Declaration Concerning the Laws of Naval War, the Declaration of London of 1909. And this is important for the coming two world wars, which are very famous for commerce warfare. This created the provisions for the legal seizing seizing of ships carrying contraband, and also defining what may or may not be considered contraband, and under what circumstances it may be seized. Crucially, Article 50, before a vessel is destroyed, all persons on board must be placed in safety, and all ships' papers and other documents which the parties um, interested consider relevant for the purposes of declaring the validity of the capture must be taken on board the ship. These are the famous prize rules that Germany, and in fact America and Britain as well, are about to invalidate with the advent of a new technology, explicitly designed to target mercantile shipping, but simultaneously incapable of operating under these same rules. These are submarines. Before we get to that, though, and this is a big area of mine, so sorry if I'm um, dominating the conversation here in Austin sitting on the back seat, but this period of naval warfare is a, a huge interest of mine. Coupled with this is sort of the growth of the, the, the big navies, the all-steel navies of the of the late 19th and early 20th century, uh, as industrialization is sweeping the globe. The ability to create more and more magnificent ships is becoming a huge diplomatic point in Europe. We talked about prestige in the last in a previous episode about the Great Game. Naval prestige was as important, if not more important, would you say, than the land prestige, depending on depending on what nations you were talking of, of. but particularly towards the end of the ni- 19th century and the turn of the 20th century. Absolutely, and that's because, as always with these podcasts, you've got to consider the context. Um, at this time, you've got the establishment and really the maturation of the colony system, whereby the acquisition and control of colonies and the trade and value that brought, particularly in the international system, was a big part of prestige. You got to remember that in this period of time, and from this period of time onwards, you really don't see a premier European power emerge whose main strength is land warfare. The last time we see that, of course, is the Prussians in the mid-1800s. And so what happens here is we end up with the very famous, and I'm sure Alistair who will have a lot more to say on this, the dreadnought race between the UK and Germany, but also France. The Russians, of course, stayed out of it because it's the Russians and they don't particularly care. America's getting on in this too, though, with their famous Great White Fleet doing a huge tour of all American interests and overseas in a fleet of the latest battleships they could buy, painted the most ostentatious, come-look-at-me colour they could bloody manage. It's, exactly. it's the Great White fleet because of the color they painted it exactly and i think the real proof in the pudding is what happens when world war one breaks out and what happens there is all sides immediately start looking at each other's colonies and so you know we have a tendency when we look at the first world war to focus on the western front but i'd encourage listeners and perhaps we'll do an episode on this sometime later but have a look what happened in german east africa with von leto vorbeck that's a really interesting story of sort of what happens when prestige is so bound up in both naval and colonial power. There are a number of famous naval battles um, in the First World War, and uh, we'll skip over a few bits and pieces and come straight to this, because I think it's important. 
But there are a couple of very famous naval battles in, in the First World War. The largest, of course, is the Battle of Jutland, which goes south for everyone involved for a number of different reasons. And I'm going to link in the show notes a fantastic lecture from the British Rifles Museum on the Battle of Jutland and what happens. is a phenomenal lecture you should listen to. But the sort of realization of all of the European powers was that no one really could compete with the British for straight naval supremacy, a straight-up big-guns battleship fight is something that really the British dominate. And they dominate this from the launch of the HMS Dreadnought, the first all-gun, big-gun battleship. So, as, as early as 1869, a French captain, Louis Gravel, is saying that in, rather than engage in a, a, a fleet action, they should engage in uh, guru de course on, on, on warfare on maritime um, trade. And they, he says, just through the rise of insurance rates on the London Exchange, two or three years of well-directed cruisers, lightly armed, very fast ships, um, designed to take on naval, uh, naval trade rather than naval warfare, would suffice to take away customers of the enemy's merchant flag, that is to say, dry up the principal source of the national wealth. Now, what Gravel is saying without saying there is that London is very vulnerable as an island nation to that kind of warfare, especially vulnerable. Everywhere else in Europe has overland routes it can use, either primarily in, for example, the case of Russia, or as secondary sources at the very least. England is unique in its isolation as an island European nation to rely almost exclusively on naval trade for its strategic and economic resources. And that's a vulnerability that's never gone unnoticed by its enemies. And the, the French are pretty famous for it. I mean, Gravel is in the first... Uh, by far, French officer to make that exact point. Um, the Battle of Trafalgar, of course, was the result of a failed action by the French to conduct such hostilities, which ended up with the French Navy being bottled up in port and therefore defeated. But the modern history of this, of course, doesn't lie with the French, but with the Germans, who also realise this and are the antagonists of the next two world wars. And there are two points here that I, I love. I love this period of history, and there are two ships that I have a particular affection for, and they're a little cliche, but I want to talk about them for a second, um, that really highlight this kind of warfare in what it was as practiced by the cruisers, which are, at this point, if you imagine a, a cruiser as a fast, lightly arm, armored, for its weight, relatively hel- heavily armed ship, specifically designed to target merchant shipping, this is now, in 1910 to 1915, this is what the modern privateer is. He is a young naval officer coming up in his career he is aggressive he is intelligent he is able to think outside the box and he is given a tool to use to hunt he's a hunter so we have two examples of this in um world war one that are really fantastic the first and my favorite by far is the sms seadler whose master was a felix von luckner who actually as it turns out in his youth was a runaway and spent some time in um australia in perth and the in Guano Mining and a few other places. So he has an Australian connection. In fact, both of these ships have an Australian connection. So in 1916, Luckner's given command of the Sea Adler, which is actually a windjammer. This is a sail-driven ship. And this is important because at this period, all the ships are run on coal, and the coal burns very quickly. So they have a very short range. And Germany doesn't have the colonial uh, expanse that Britain does. So islands which it can safely refuel at are very limited. So the use of a sail-driven ship, as opposed to a steam-driven one, although the Sea Adler did have an auxiliary engine, very important. So he puts to sea in 1916. Over the course of his career, captures 16 ships worth about 30,000 tons, explicitly under the prize rules that had been developed at this time. And he's well known as sort of the gentleman pirate of Germany. And he starts off the Nor- in the North Sea and in Nor- Norwegian wa- waters disguised as a Norwegian trader uh, before carrying on his escapade all through the Atlantic and further south. The second case of this sort of cruiser warfare I'd point to is the Emden. There's the Great War YouTube channel has a fantastic special episode on the Emden, but to give you a, a cliff notes of it all, the Emden was uh, captained by a guy called Mueller. He was part of uh, the Pacific Fleet, the, the German Pacific Fleet, which was more or less tasked with looking over Germany's few colonial assets, particularly in uh, in Qingdao, and also throughout some of their um, assets in, in the, the Indies, uh, which was command, commanded by von Spee. Now, 
At the outbreak of war, von Spee wants to return to Germany and bring his relatively outdated fleet back to assist with the war in the Atlantic. Mueller, being a younger, more aggressive officer, suggests that the best chance that Spee has is if someone does a dis- serves as a distraction. And he takes his ship, the Emden, and takes it on a merry 200-odd-day cruise throughout, particularly off India and throughout a numerous sort of Southeast Asian countries, seizing 19 ships, sinking or, or seizing 19 ships, including a number of coal ships he uses to refuel with, sn- sneaking into the Madras harbor and shelling the, the oil bunkers there, as well as disguising himself on another occasion as a British ship, sneaking into harbor and sinking a Russian naval vessel, the Zemcheg, and a French destroyer, the Musket, in Penang. Part of the reason why he was able to do this was that he was... Um, religious about maintaining radio silence and avoiding detection, but eventually he gets, and this is the Australian connection I'm getting to, eventually he gets done in because he decides that on his way out, he's going to hit a radio relay on Direction Island. In these days, radio is is relatively short range. Ground-based stations only have a few thousand kilometers range, so you need relay stations. So he stops at Direction Island, which was the host of a British relay station, and sends a um, landing party ashore to destroy it. Unfortunately, the radio station sees him coming and gets a distress call off, and the Australian ship, a light cruiser, HMAS Sydney, which was much more modern than the Emden, catches her unawares while she has a boarding party ashore. During the exchange of fire, the Emden is sunk. In fact, some some of the artifacts of the Emden are still on display in various places in Sydney around the Australian Naval War Memorial, uh, Naval museum and um, throughout the actual navy itself has a number of artifacts as well but i've kind of ranted on enough there's sort of one thing i've pointed to here that changes how this kind of warfare is conducted new technology that comes up that changes what the privateer is almost back to being a the image of a bloodthirsty pirate yeah i mean that's that's the submarine and of course what the modern listener would would look at a submarine and think which is a, a geostrategic platform largely for the launch and, and second strike capability of nuclear weapons. You have to remember in the beginning, submarines were, of course, developed by a French inventor in the early 1800s and sort of ignored for a long time. Um, when they start to show up in the First World War, they cause a little bit of ruckus. There's a, a breakaway group of naval academics and officers who see their potential for hunting down vessels, battleships, merchant vessels, etc. Of course, the early ones were too slow, too weakly armoured, and again... This is a tin, a metal tin, underwater. So its susceptibility to damage was unsustainable. You don't want a hole in your submarine. No, not at all. What happens, of course, is anyone who knows water pressure, the thing crumples up like a balloon. However, what they had was stealth. And as they get developed more and more, of course, we see the use of the U-boat in the Second World War, which is, of course, the first modern effective submarine. We have this change from what is a, a very privateering version of of what we're talking about here to a much more um i wouldn't say bloodthirsty um but but definitely a cold cold um version they're not raiding they're hunting and so we see this be really acquired and and taken to heart by germany of course first but also the uk and the u.s who in subsequent world war ii we found out a lot more about some of the bad and illegal things that submarines and, and similar vessels conducted on all sides of the conflict. American submarines accounted for as much as 60% of uh, Japanese naval shipping during the Pacific War, much shorter period than the U-boats were operating in the Atlantic, and could have accounted for as much as 80%. It sort of depends on, because there are aircraft and other ships involved as well, but um, the Americans were surprisingly effective. Uh, at engaging in, in commerce warfare with their submarines, despite actually having a doctrine that didn't normally encompass this. What happens after the Second World War, really, is that we see a, a decline in state-sponsored piracy, and we see the emergence or re-emergence of non-state piracy and non-state maritime robbery. Now, the reason for this, of course, is not that we've suddenly seen this massive boom in pirates. I mean, technology's got better, but not that much. What happens is that navies move away from privateering. Um, and what ha- what the result is, is, of course, during the Cold War and post-World War II period, they're much more focused on actual conventional conflict between two major states. And so we end up in sort of modern context where we have pirates. And this is where sort of I'm more interested in, but I think I'll, 
I'll chuck across to Alistair because um, I know Alistair's better at that transition period than I am. Yeah, so there's a couple of things going on here. I, I, one of the things I want to backtrack to with submarines that's really important here is that up until this point, the privateering that's occurred, there has been and was at the time a romantic overture of piracy. And privateering that uh, carried that through. The, the gentleman p- German pirates of Mueller and um, von Luckner. There are... I discovered during the research of this episode, two Australian films, two German films, and a joint German-Australian film about the Emden made between 1920 and 1935. It captured that much imagination as a story. And there are national spins on both of them, but there's also a general understanding of that this is a um, the gentleman's game of warfare. Submarines are not. Particularly in the First and Second World War, as Austin said, these are small very slow, comparatively very weakly armed, armoured, with the exception of the torpedo, incredibly underarmed, and space as well. There's just no room. You can't take crew on board from the destroyed ship on a on a U-boat, a Type 7 U-boat with a crew of maybe 50 guys that's crammed the bulkheads with food and provisions and torpedoes, and the crew is already hot-bunking three to a bunk. You don't have the room, and so what you have Instead of the noble pirate, noble privateer, or gallant young naval officer crusading across the seas, a young man of only 22, 24, commanding his own little island of warfare, gallantly challenging merchant vessels. Instead, what you have is dark, dank, bearded, grimy old men hunting and killing and sinking ships. And this is the, this is the essence of what U-boat warfare, particularly in World War II. And the brutality of it. One in four German sailors sailors came back from that warfare, and the toll on merchantmen, and particularly the the discourse of, of the merchantmen at the, at the peak of that, what the Germans called the happy times, was enormous. This was brutal in the in the minds and eyes of those practicing it. This was not gentleman a gentleman's game at all. This was cold, stabbing you in the back in the dark alley kind of warfare. And so this, I think, personally, my own personal thesis is part of the reason why you see the decline in this, is that rather than Kreuzerkrieg of, of cruisers and privateering, the lesson of the late part of World War One and of World War Two is that merchant shipping becomes nasty, and we don't do it anymore. And that, that there's a normative response to that that shifts what a submarine is alongside technology, shifts what a techno- what the submarine is away from being a commerce killer. And a commerce killer. They didn't take cargo. They didn't see ships for their own use like the Sea Adler was actually a, a, a merchant ship originally. Submarines just kill. And so what they do is they shift that emphasis and it becomes instead a platform for something that is more sterile. The deployment of nuclear weapons. Horrific, but clean. So I think there's normative discourse that happens there as well. It's really important to point to. And I think it triggered a larger normative discourse. I mean, when we look at, when we talk about conflict between states and i mean we've had this topic about liberal war and whether conventional warfare is still a thing and you know listeners know our opinions on such so i won't rehash them but the norm swung very much in the other direction now there's very little talk about actually killing commerce that's considered very not okay and it breaches quite significant laws and international post-world war ii i guess the other thing is globalization the idea of attacking commerce even in World War One, World War Two. There's a big to do about what is neutral and what is not. Today, that's impossible to untangle. Yeah, particularly because it's commonly accepted today for merchant vessels to fly under what's called a flag of convenience, and that may change multiple times in a cruise. Yeah, and the assumption among navies is that if you have a distress signal from a naval vessel or a merchant vessel of any variety, you're required to render assistance within territory. It's not to the extent where a submarine-based uh, merchant killing campaign would even be effective or would even be allowed under today's globalized system because it's simply impossible to tell who belongs to who on the high seas. Now, I'm a hopeless romantic and I also have a thing for U-boat warfare, but modern piracy is not something I know much about. So, Austin, please, what is going on? You know, if you look at the way that piracy has changed in the modern context, I mean, we just talked about how state-based piracy is no longer really a thing. In its place has risen violent non-state act groups and, and individuals. Again, I mentioned this earlier in the episode. The vast majority of modern pirates are simply fishermen 
or dock workers. And I think it's important to recognise here that the, the vast majority of maritime robbery, which, by the way, despite the discourse, is actually just considered part and parcel and, and factored into calculations of shipping companies. Um, the vast majority of those uh, events are simply robbery off the dock. Um, you know, the proverbial thing fell off the back of the truck or very high threat, low actual violence attacks on the sea. It is quite rare, um, even in the modern context, for a full-on hijacking to occur. I was actually browsing, sorry to cut you off here, Austin, but I was actually browsing through um, a live update service on piracy around the world. There was one report that really caught my eye as sort of an archetype of that kind of nonviolent piracy. It's a research vessel, I don't want to mention the name, uh, that was docked at Singapore, that was um, suffered quite a substantial theft, but otherwise, it's more or less exactly like a waterborne version of your average house invasion. Everyone's asleep, they snuck on board, took what they wanted, and left. Well, no one wants to kill if they can get away with just the money. Yeah, and I think when we, when we look at this, we see that it's part of a system, right? Now, you have to remember that in, in modern context, in the modern context, over 80% of global trade, billions and billions of dollars of value of cargo, is transported in the maritime environment. Without maritime trade, even with all the advances in aircraft we have, it simply wouldn't be possible for the globalised community to exist as it is. When you have that much shipping occurring, particularly in regions of the world where there are a lot of individuals with boats and, and long histories of such things, it is quite normal. And it is quite factored in that things will just disappear. Now, when we do see traditional hijackings, and again, to emphasise, these are quite rare, um, we see them occur mainly in two spots in the world. The first, of course, is the Horn of Africa, which you know is, is very popular and everyone knows about Somali pirates and all the rest of it. Um, that led to, again, in reflection of the globalised economy we're living to, one of the most multinational naval task forces that's ever been put together. You've got Russian ships, Chinese ships, South Korean ships, American ships, all sorts, that are all there to provide an armed response capability to Somali pirates. But also, and more importantly, the second most pirated region in the world is, of course, the Straits of Malacca and similar uh, avenues of sea lines of communication in Southeast Asia, where a lot of this does occur. Now, what's important is that pirates aren't dumb. And the ones that conduct traditional hijackings are usually parts of organized criminal syndicates. And they are very careful about who they select to target. This is not opportunistic anymore, right? When you look at an actual armed hijacking, it's quite often the result of a large, what we would call in a state-based context, intelligence network. And so what that means is you see some quite interesting trends. For example, in the 10 years between 2001 and 2011, crude palm oil was the favoured target. Now this is because it was easy to sell and it was quite valuable. Now, of course, the prime target for hijackings in Southeast Asia is in fact crude petroleum which is easy to sell and easy to pump off a vessel once you have control of it. That's not to say, of course, that hijackings and piracy nowadays aren't violent. Rarely, we do see instances where a ship is captured, the crew is killed, the vessel is renamed and re-registered, and it becomes what's called a ghost ship, and it's used in other trafficking. Now, for those of you who aren't aware, I, I encourage you, and again, this is another one, we're, we're actually providing a lot of PhD ideas in this episode. Yeah, we're, we're really reaching out and trying to grow research. It's a good thing it's not in our areas. Yeah, yeah, we're shooting ourselves in the foot. But it's really worth looking into, if you're interested, look into the amount of illegal flora, fauna, and etc. trade and trafficking that occurs in Southeast Asia. We're looking at 20%, roughly from memory, of Indonesian timber export is illegal. We're not talking about little boats. And so this is where those ghost ships go. They're used for transporting illegal freight. The black market is a market like any other, and if you need to move bulk black market goods, you need an invisible ship. So this is where they get them? Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. That's exactly what I'm saying. And so it's important then to realise that when you look at the target being crude petroleum, for example, that just in the Straits of Malacca and Singapore there are one-third of global oil every day goes through those two areas, right? So it's a target-rich environment. You only have to take one or two ships and you've made millions of dollars. And, you know, there's a massive industry that's sprung up in the modern times that wasn't available in the 17th century, which is ship insurance and ship reinsurance companies. And so there's a lot involved here, economics-wise. It's important that piracy does actually represent a serious threat economically to countries, particularly small countries. And that's because... 
insurance companies and shipping country companies will only accept a certain amount of risk, after which they'll simply ship through a different route. For example, there was a major publicised violent hijacking on the merchant vessel Limburg in 2002, and that was immediately followed by a 300% increase in insurance policies for ships that were docking in Yemenese ports. And as a result, port volumes and therefore tax and tariff and all the rest of it in Yemeni ports dropped by 50%. Now that's an immediate major economic consequence. And a problem for pirates because, of course, that diminishes your, your target. And this is, goes back to the dualistic nature of piracy that I was alluding to before and the reliance on those trade routes. If you, just, if you bite the hand that feeds you too much, the hand stops feeding you. There's also, and again, we talked about globalized economy, there's also the danger for pirates, particularly ones that aren't operating in syndicates, that you might steal the wrong thing. And so several years ago, there was a Ukrainian-flagged vessel, Alice is grinning at me because he knows what I'm talking about, that went missing off the coast of Somalia. It was allegedly hijacked. Now, no one knew who it was. The Ukrainians wouldn't admit to sending the vessel. Eventually, the vessel showed up in Singapore under a new name with a new crew. Subsequently, it's been alleged that it was, in fact, carrying arms from Russia and a completely legal shipment of arms. Including a shipment of tanks. This isn't. This, this is not like, oh, we can use this as pirates and get away with it. No. Allegedly, this was a substantial shipment of very expensive military um, material. And the, the last we hear on the public record of this vessel is that a ransom demand was issued from a group of Somali pirates that no one's ever heard from again. So you can see why piracy can be quite dangerous. Now, as many things in this podcast do, everything eventually comes full circle, and the more things change, the more things tend to want to remain the same. So, as we've already alluded, the return of... of anarchist true pirates rather than privateers but also now there's been a suggestion that a way of combating this is a return to one of the other traditional roles of privateers in anti-piracy operations and in fact this comes from the fact that the american constitution that was amended to allow the issuance of letters of mark of privateering licenses that's never gone away so it started with ron paul but since then at least two Military officers that I can find, both judge advocates, one of the Air Force and one of the Navy, have proposed that in the much the same way that private military companies have provided security in Iraq and Afghanistan and so on, and as shipping companies are increasingly relying on individuals or security teams, armed security teams of mercenaries to provide security on the ships themselves, that actually at least the United States, if not other countries as well, could issue letters of mark and they use that terminology because it is the legal term, to individuals or ship owners to engage in anti-piracy operations. Now, again, this is this is back to, this is not a, a mercenary um, security team from Blackwater or what have you on your ship to defend your ship. Now we're talking about, again, contracting private vessels to engage in anti-piracy, uh, borderline military police actions on the high seas on behalf of another nation but not operating under that nation's flag. Why are they doing that? Well, big multinational naval efforts are fantastic, and lots of countries, and China is actually the biggest contributor to this, do engage in it, but they're also expensive. And if you can privatize that, and they still have the provisions, why not? Now, this isn't something that's actually come to a head yet, and these articles are from the peak of, of Somali piracy in 2007 to 2011, but the important point is to be made here is that it's not just politicians making this, but some legal theorists are at least engaging in the idea, and so the potential exists to head once more in that direction. Now, I'm not going to make a normative judgment on whether that's good or bad, because I don't think you can, but it's an interesting point that the history comes around again, and the discussion is raised much as it was back in the 17th century. And it is one of those things, right, where, you know, we have all these wondrous technologies and all the rest of it, but at the end of the day, it's the same basic problem, and we're fighting the same basic issue, right? What happens when you have the equivalent of an insurgency? And that's what it is. Piracy is the naval equivalent of an insurgency or a rebellion or a banditry campaign. In none of those scenarios on the land can you use conventional military force by itself to solve the problem. And it's the exact same at sea. No matter what your technology is, we're not talking about sophisticated vessels that show up on radar very well. We are talking about it 
a massive industry operating in a large open space in an incredibly vulnerable way. At the same time as this is occurring with Judge Advocate Generals, there's also been arguments raised by multiple countries and academics even that what we should have is armed merchant vessels again or, in the alternate, floating armories have been suggested, largely by private military contractors who stand to gain by such things. And this is the thing, it's a profitable enterprise if you're in that business. So if you're not an academic and listening and looking for a career change, it might be that privateering's for you. And then, you know, you can find yourself an armory and set it up off the coast of Yemen or Somalia. And I'm sure you'll make lots of money until they declare it illegal or someone comes and raids you. But that's where we're going again. And it is one of those issues we see in history. I just, given we've come full circle and as we've well and truly over time, and I, I want to close with this point, which I think sums all of this up quite well. This is from Hebelholm's Ports, Piracy and Maritime War, Piracy in the English Channel and the Atlantic. He's talking about the 12th and 13th centuries here, but I think the quote carries off both ends of the conversation quite well. While it may seem as if piracy was omnipresent in the Middle Ages, and that mariners and merchants lived in continual danger, as the story is today, it must be noted that seaborne trade generally functioned, and functioned well. And I think that's the situation we are today. It seems, particularly when you start tuning into the, the, the reports from governments or from maritime traders or from academia that piracy is indeed omnipresent but in general my amazon delivery showed up on time how about yours well that's well and truly time for this evening we hope you've enjoyed this episode and if you've any thoughts or feedback or any comments at all please don't hesitate to leave them either in the comments section below or better yet start a conversation over on our subreddit the link as well as to our show notes patreon and social media pages can be found below once again, we'd love to send a big thank you out to our patrons who have been supporting us over the past few months, and we'd encourage you, if you've enjoyed the show, to think about becoming one yourself. It's only with their support that this show has been able to continue throughout this year, and it's with their support it will continue into the future. Join us in two weeks' time as we take the conversation back onto land and explore the use of mercenaries in history and today, and their impact on the conduct and understanding of land warfare. Until then, once again, thank you for listening, and good night.